Hello, and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. I'm your host for this week, Aura, and I'm here with Storm King. Hey, everyone. And Kagyu. How's everyone doing? Our good friend Dharma Kirti couldn't be here this week, but that's fine. He'll be back next time. And this week we're going to continue our discussion of the fundamental verses of the middle way by the scholar Nagarjuna. And uh, we're going to have a a free-form discussion, but we are going to base it off of the text. And officially, we're doing chapters 7, 8, and 9. I actually also prepped up for 10 and 11, guys. Um, but oh. uh, we're going to talk about the text. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> uh, but we're going to talk about the text and um, get into a little bit more of what Nagarjuna uh, is all about. So if you missed the first couple of episodes on this one, you should still be able to follow with us. But if you want to, you can go back. We've already done uh, two episodes on this on this piece. So um, I don't have anything for introductory, but, you know, Storm King is our, uh, our resident Nagarjuna fanboy. Um, so, Storm, <laughs> if you wouldn't mind, I don't me putting you on the spot. Do you, no, yeah. uh, so, do you have anything to say about number seven or anything in general? Uh, well, just in case people are tuning in and haven't heard the last couple episodes. And then there was actually um, an episode between the last time we talked about this and uh, and and this one, because I think I was I had something to do and I wasn't here. But um so my notes have been kind of the guiding thing that we've been going by because I've been taking notes um, kind of verse by verse and, and having a commentary on each verse. And um, I had a incident with Windows 10 that destroyed all my music for all my projects pretty much and all my notes. So I did not have it in me really and didn't have the time with work stuff to go back and remake all those notes. So we're just going to kind of just generally talk about these next couple chapters. Uh, and I, you know, DK quotes me as saying that I think this is like one of the, if not the most interesting um, and best philosophical texts that's ever been written. And I do think that I think that because uh, I think that the Mahayanists in general, and especially Nagarjuna are coming from a place where they're being honest about the limits of what we call knowledge kind of ending at the conventional and, and I think it's implied in the text that even though our knowledge ends at conventional, um, the ultimate is still basically the only thing we can experience, right? So it, it, it takes a really honest viewpoint about human epistemology and ontology. And uh, I just think it's a fantastic text. And the, you know, the guiding principle of the text is that Nagarjuna is going to refute basically two things. He's going to refute reification. And here... In this text, reification means that um, we're we're imputing something with a self-essence, which is an indivisible core of a thing's essence. So like a table would have some set of tableness as its inherent existence, meaning it's got a, a soul or a self that's indivisible. So he's going to refute all kinds of different reifications um, by showing that when you reify things, uh, you basically fall into incoherence when you try and add anything else to it, like causality or time or any of the stuff you would want to preserve, um, because those things are basically undeniable aspects of experience. And then on the other hand, he's going to refute nihilism, where you argue that there um, is a total lack of things. Uh, and, and nihilism is the easier version, the easier side to refute, um, because... Most of the things nihilism claims don't exist can be observed to exist <laughs> pretty <clears throat> pretty easily. Like we can see that there's change. We can see that there are um, phenomenon. You know, we can see that there's suffering. So, 
Yeah. Right. That's what the famous uh, famous Samuel Johnson um, uh, anecdote <clears throat> from the life of Dr. Johnson, where somebody's talking about how do we know that? Um, of course. <laughs> well, I'll just tell the anecdote anyway. Um, <laughs> somebody's saying like, how do we know that uh, anything exists at all? Uh, how, how can you refute that? And Dr. Johnson just kicks a rock and he says, "I refute it thusly." So that's um, super zen. It That's is a super sad, actually. Story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it is worth mentioning yeah. that because, I mean, there is this tendency I think a lot of people have when it, Buddhism mentions the idea of emptiness for people to assume it is just like that kind of nihilistic position that nothing exists, which isn't the case at all. I mean, the appearance is certainly there, and, you know, we deal with it according to. I mean, it, it, they are conditioned and they tend to follow predictable rules as a result. So that's something that does need to be emphasized through this whole text when we're saying yeah, something doesn't I agree. exist. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I like the term that Storm has used a few times. Um, I think we've all used it, which is reifying. Um, yes. the, the problem is to, to, to sort of take it down from, from the graduate level down to um, my, my level, <laughs> the grade school level mm. on this stuff. The, the easiest way for me to sort of conceptualize what's going on, both in Nagarjuna and in just sort of sophisticated Buddhism in general, is that the, the problem is not, it, it's not saying that there are no phenomenon and there are no experiences. What, what it's saying is the mind has uh, what seems to be an inborn, I mean, we can argue about whether or not it's inborn, but at least in lived human experience, it seems to be this inborn tendency to reify things, to make categories out of things, or to make, you know, monads or or holistic not holistic is the wrong word but you guys know what i mean They're, yeah I mean, taking it's... something taking something that it, defining it with edges right taking the uh my guy alan watts always says it's it's a wiggly world and we we try to make it straight we try to fit it into a graph and that's fine it's useful and everything but the mistake is that we we let ourselves think this this way and we miss out on what's actually happening um because yeah, the, we're, too, we're too caught in our categories. Yeah, the world of phenomenal experience is kind of seductive in that way because it, it very much looks like things have definite easy boundaries. Like I'm looking at my rack of guitars right now. Each guitar plainly looks like one solid, whole, easily identifiable thing. But really, I mean, I can I can break that apart and and take it apart piece by piece and take the pieces apart piece by piece. I will never find anything about this Fender Jazzmaster that has as its nature in, in independent of anything else Fender Jazzmasterness right <laughs> yes i was hoping you would finish by saying it that way yeah and then what what's re what's relevant about this is cuz we use this example of the chair and the table and the the chariot which is the classical example and your uh your Fender Jazzmaster and everything but these are all physical objects and it's you know, we talked quite a bit about that. And I guess the the real sort of profound life altering perspective, of something like Nagarjuna is that he's like, yes, it, that's true of guitar masters and, you know, or uh, jazz masters and tables and chairs and chariots. But it's also true of like the notion of going or the notion of being or origination or all these weird little categories we have in our mind. And what's really cool about this text is that. You know, first, I mean, he's breaking down all these categories we have in our head, like origination or going and the goer. But part of the cool thing is that he's even pointing out that you have these categories. You know what I mean? Like, I did, you, if you don't stop and think about it, you don't really realize that you have two different ideas in your head of, like, 
going and goingness or something. But you do, you yeah, know? Yeah, it's weird to have a moment where you're like, damn, I've been reifying these properties, like, my whole life. Holy shit, I didn't even think about the category of properties and whether or not a property can exist independently of the property holder and what that relationship is. Yet I operate based on the truth or falsity of these things every day in my life. It's like kind of a, like when you first read it, it's like, holy shit. It's kind of a, a bit of a red pill, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And I, at the risk of talking too much and repeating myself from earlier episodes, I just like to say that the main point for me, at least of all this stuff is because, because obviously this stuff is really cool, but then you can come up with the counter argument and you're like, yeah, you're just kind of masturbating about words and definitions and stuff. Like, what's the point? Who cares? Like, maybe he's right, but what's the difference? What difference does it make? And of course, the Buddhist answer, I think Nagarjuna's answer, and especially the answer of the Buddha himself, is that these things are causing you suffering. Like, they're causing you suffering when you stick to these, these categories. And until you break free of them, you're going to suffer. And the whole Buddhist project is... Uh, yeah, seeing the fundamental nature of reality and therefore ending suffering. And in order to get there, you need to to realize the ways in which you're essentially making up false realities uh, in your head. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's telling so you how the all the different ways you're fucking up, basically. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there are pe- I, there is a, a there are a lot of people who are like absolute metaphysical realists who will say that there is a real color, like a real red or a real table that is essentially that has that kind of essential nature to it. And so, I think Nagarjuna is very useful for confronting that kind of worldview and the attendant suffering that comes along with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, let's let's dive into it. Um, so, what chapter seven? Uh, yeah, that's seven. I'm not too good at Roman. Okay, yeah. I don't know. I don't like know my Roman numerals, and this version I have has Roman numerals. Okay. So this is uh, examination of the conditioned. And just some background. There's a thing called, it's called a couple different things. It's like the three marks of existence or the three states. But there's basically like three conditions that every phenomenon is said to have, or three attributes, and that's arising, persisting for a while, or stasis, and then passing away due to impermanence so this chapter on the whole is going to deal with whether or not those three states have an inherent existence and how it plays out if if they do and what kind of errors we get into and this one is particularly interesting um the commentators in the sitterates translation point this out that um talking about what they say, you say arising, um, and what they're translating as origination, um, is getting, is touching very close on one of the central tenets of Buddhism, which is, uh, dependent origination or dependent co-arising. So, uh, Nagarjuna is really like wading right into like the battle in terms of like Buddhist, uh, metaphysics when he talks about these things. Yes, because I mean, initially when I came across this chapter and I was thinking about it, it seemed like he was talking about the same thing he mentioned in the first chapter when he was mentioning arising. Um, but this is specifically arising as it relates to the idea of dependent origination. And so it's, it's a little bit different because it's very easy, I think, to assume that dependent origination is real. Um, and I mean, but the thing is, I mean, I was actually kind of thinking back to the there's like the, the thing in the heart such it's like no origination. Yeah, yeah. The, see, the the opponent, one of the imagined opponents in this chapter is going to do what we said earlier. He's going to reify dependent origination as if it's a thing with an essence whose essence is to make everything else 
uh, lack an essence and be dependent. So it's like it's like if they're saying um, it's like it would be like someone telling you that there's a really existent void, right? Does that make yes. sense? That's yep. kind of what's yep. going on. It was so, something that I actually kind of thought <clears throat> for a for a case was kind of mistakenly thinking might actually be the case for a while when I was first initially reading into Buddhism. Well, and I would I would like to just uh, be a little bit of a devil's advocate, uh, Kagyu, and say that's also something that I thought. And I'm not entirely sure I don't still think that. I, I'm i not entirely sure that this chapter convinced me. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get into it. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Aura and, and Kagyu, is that mm-hmm. <clears throat> it, it doesn't, you know, there may be, in fact, I tend to agree that there is some sort of uh, existent void. I don't think it has a self-existence, but I do think that is an aspect of existence, right? So Nagarjuna is yes. not saying there's no void. He's saying there's no self-existent void that exists independent of its relationship to things that are not void. Basically, it's like it, it, emptiness exists, but only exists in, in, in conjunction with form. It's yes. dependent on the existence of form. It can't exist independently of that. So, so what happens if we say that emptiness exists... And if we say that it exists in Buddhism, that means it has origination, stasis, and and ceasing, right? Um, this is this is a problem because um, you cannot you can't make sense of um, dependent origination or emptiness arising uh, because there would have to be nothing before it, right? There would be no time that it could arise. It's, it doesn't make sense to speak of it as having stasis. Right, because so if we're going to say that emptiness inherently exists, that means it has those three categories, and it has them. Oh, hit my mic! It would have them inherently. So if it exists and it has these three categories and these three attributes inherently, that's a problem because you can't say something is arising if it's in stasis. You can't say something is in stasis if it's arising or if it's ceasing, and you can't say something is ceasing if it's arising or in stasis. So it can't have any of those three categories inherently. It has to have them, if it has them at all, one at a time. Do you understand what I'm saying? It can't be arising and ceasing and in stasis at the same time. Right. Right, but I guess, so, yes, I agree and I understand. Um, wh- why can't there be a category of, why can't there be something that's origination cessation, That that's one thing? And that in the that, that doesn't fit into our current categories of origination and cessation. Um, like, what if we're just missing the word for something that uh, passes away, and and in passing away, something else arises? And forget duration. Forget forget uh, duration. Let's just say he's okay, right about be, duration. Isn't that just being then? If it, if it, if it simultaneously <laughs> encompasses Maybe. both. I, I mean, I can't really think of anything that could do that unless you're looking at all of well, existence. What if, to, like this entire if, phenomenon of existence together. What if cessation of A is the same thing as origination of B, and cessation of B is the same thing as origination of C, well, then, then and those so things, on like that? Well, then those things lack a self-essence and depend on each other. Mm, yeah. Because they're yeah, changing, but isn't, and they're changing. Isn't based, that, wouldn't well, that just C be classical was, co- dependent co-arising then? It would be, yes. So then I don't understand how Nagarjuna has refuted dependent uh, classical dependent co-arising in this. 
He hasn't. He's refuted a heretical okay. view, which reifies it as a self-existent object. I guess you could, you could say it's the appearances. Okay. Definitely. I mean, the appearances. It, it, it's correct to say that there are the the appearance of it, but it's not. Um, there's no intrinsic existence to dependent origination beyond um, the appearing phenomenon you see. Right. I guess yeah. It's, it's so a quote that Garfield makes that I really like is he says. Um, the emptiness of things is their conventional nature. The emptiness of emptiness is that that is as far as it goes. Um, yep. I, I, I now, wish DK there's was a couple here of different readings that. of that, one of which is like a Gillug thing. Yeah. Um, but I like, I mean, he's kind of pointing out that, like, you know, these claims are conventional. These are conventional claims. Every Everything that Nagarjuna is saying, and he, he says that at the end, right? Right. right. Some other problems that he gets into in this chapter are um, if you reif- let's say you reify origination, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't. <clears throat> if you reify origination, that means it has as its nature to be originating. So this is the same problem basically that we encounter with causality, where if it has as its nature to originate, it's not going to do anything else. It can't say you can't say well in this in these situation origination originates x and not y because that means it depends on conditions for its nature to originate. So it, what's happening in this chapter is the opponent is trying to reify stuff. He's trying to reify origination, stasis, secession. He's trying to reify emptiness and dependent origination itself. And every time he does so. We're getting infinite regresses. We're getting incoherent stuff. We're we're destroying um, the accuracy of our perception of things. That's 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 basically the lowdown in this chapter. Okay. Well, I so I wrote down a note on um, just after verse four in the Sidoret's um, mm-hmm. interpretation that's of Sidoret's right translation. Now. So just after verse four, uh, Sidoret's and Katsura interject. Um, well, for our audience, I'll read. I'll read verse four. Verse four is voiced in the voice of uh, his straw man opponent. The origination of origination is only the origination of the primary origination. That primary origination, in turn, brings about the origination of origination. Right. So Nagarjuna isn't arguing that he's he's going to refute that. Right. So then the commentary is the opponent introduces a. A distinction between the prime origination, which is the origination of a dharma, and the origination of origination, which is what originates the primary origination. In order to avoid the infinite regress that arises when we ask, as in verse 3, what originates the origination of the origination, the opponent claims that this is originated by the primary origination. Okay, that was the word origination a lot of times, but my comment was, is the problem that such a thing could not be, or that we cannot currently imagine it? Because it seems to me that if the problem is the second one, that we just can't imagine it, then it is possible that it's not a problem with the dharmas, but just a problem with us. And I don't know if I'm being Mr. Smarty Pants or if I'm finally just getting Nagarjuna's point. Um, so I think... Do you get the objection that, that I'm raising? <clears throat> yeah, and it's, this actually comes up a lot, like discussing stuff on Twitter, and it's that... The inability for us to imagine something does not rule out the possibility of it happening. Like, can I imagine a way? This is just an example. I guess kind of a bad example because math is axiomatic. But, okay, I can't come up or imagine a way that 2 plus 2 equals 27. The fact that I can't come up with it, that it's not logically conceivable, doesn't mean 
that there isn't some way for it to be true. Because for me to be able to claim there's no way that could be true, I'm essentially claiming I have perfect knowledge of everything. Otherwise, right. I can't rule it out, right? So it's kind of both things, yeah. what you're saying here. And so, like, the opponent here, the the, the quote-unquote straw man opponent or the uh, imagined opponent is basically saying, you know, he's, he gets asked, okay, if we, if we say that a rising exists as its own thing, what gives rise to a rising? And he's saying, oh, there's a special arising that it it's always been there. It gives rise to a rising. You're, <clears throat> the opponent's <clears throat> basically just making up a special case to fill a hole, right? So it's like if you were to ask me right. something and I just made up a new god on the spot that does just that. Basically, it's, it's a thing that you insert to prevent said infinite regress that would exist otherwise. Yeah, right. Yeah, if you, I mean, yeah, I get, it's if like you already have an arising right? that gives rise to a rising, why do you need the second arising? Once there's a rising, that's all the arising you need. You don't need a second special arising. Only if you ask yourself, where does a rising come from? Oh, it comes from a rising. Now generate an infinite regress, right? So if you don't reify a rising, if you regard a rising as a conventional understanding, i.e. a non-ultimate understanding yeah. of something that we experience phenomena doing and you don't reify it, you don't get these problems, right? It's the reification of a rising that causes the infinite regress and then causes the opponent to be like, oh, uh, there's a special <laughs> origination. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm satisfied. Um, the whole next section is pretty interesting. Um, so in, the, in one translation, it, it's about... So the opponent is basically like... Um, Dependent Chapter seven, the next verses, or oh no, the the next, yeah, the next verses where he talks about the light or the lamp. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, this is verses. Oh yeah, like verse eight, nine, ten, those ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, let's see. I'm looking for my notes here. Nagarjuna now launches a lengthy critique of the example, arguing that the relation between a lamp and what it illuminates is not one that supports a notion of inherently existence of inherent <clears throat> inherently existent basis on things that are not inherently existent can depend. So he's saying that um, the the opponent wants to say that like a dependent origination gives rise to itself and to all the other things, the same way a lamp lights up itself and other things. So that's the analysis they want to make. And there are some issues with this. Um, let's see, looking at my notes. I actually, since it's not very long, I'll, I would like to actually just read these yeah, uh, verses. It. So this is Sidoret's translation, starting with verse 8, beginning with what the opponent says. As a light illuminates both itself and what is other, so origination brings about the origination of both itself and what is other. Reply, there is no darkness either in the light or where it is placed. Where does the light illuminate? Illumination is in fact the destruction of darkness. How is darkness destroyed by a light that is originating when an originating light does not come in contact with darkness? Or if darkness is destroyed by a light that has not yet come in contact with it, then the light that is here will destroy darkness located throughout the world. If light illuminates both itself and what is other, then darkness as well will certainly conceal both itself and what is other. How could this origination that is not yet originated produce itself? If you say it produces itself, having already been originated, how can it be produced for the second time? So th that's sort of the, how it flows. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, the issue, a lot of issues here, right? A lot of things to talk about. Uh, I like the point that if, if you're suggesting that origination originates itself and others, that means it doesn't, there, there's no limit to what it could originate. It would originate everything right away instantly, right? And that's the comparison between if, if the light illuminates itself and others with no dependence, then it would just destroy all darkness. There would be nothing else, right? So if origination originates itself and everything dependent on nothing else, then it would just originate everything right away and there would be no rhyme or reason to it. And so the thing about darkness is like, if we say that light illuminates itself and others, then that would mean darkness is the same type of phenomenon. So that would mean that, okay, this is funny. That would mean that darkness, if it has as its intrinsic nature to conceal things, then it would also conceal itself. So it would be darkness that you cannot see. And everywhere would yeah. be dark. This is this is what I like about this text is that it start it starts making you through a series of very logical steps. It starts introducing like these brain breaking ideas into your head, you know, like that really paradoxical things. But it's not just like, oh, isn't this a cute paradox? Because he leads you to the paradox, and you're like, you know, you do like a double blink. You're like, what? You know, because it's so <laughs> it's so mind baffling. I had another one in here um, because in the commentary between verse ten and eleven, Sideret says. Um, talking about darkness and light, you know, destroying themselves or coming into contact. He comments, but for one thing to destroy another, the two things must come in contact. And the contact requires that the two occur in the same place. Yeah. And I wrote, and I wrote, really? Why? And I'm not actually trying to ask that question, but it made me think like, well, do they have to come in contact? Maybe they act like spooky action at a distance you know what i mean like maybe there's maybe there's something and then i realized like that's this is kind of the point of the text to being like well do, do lightness light and dark really have maybe they operate you know through some sort of space-time vacuum or something you know <laughs> yeah you have but to, that's kind of the yeah it like forces you to either be like oh i guess they can't or to come up with something some kind of crazy workaround right so then he like you find yourself taking the role of the opponent where you're like, ah, but it's spooky action or, or there's a God that specifically does just this thing, right? I mean, exactly. If light doesn't make contact with darkness in order to clear it, then what is it that mediates what light clears what darkness? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So if I flick so on you, a flashlight, you... it lights up the whole world. Right. But that's not what happens, right? Yeah, it's, it's right. beautiful, actually. Right. It's elegant. Or if you said they existed independently, you could have something that's both simultaneously light, light and, dark. and dark. Yeah, it's just it's. You also get the situation I... where light lights up light or not. So then you would end up creating the possibility for light that doesn't light that isn't lit up, and you would have things that are lit up without without light. Just like properties. I wrote. I wrote after verse fourteen um, a little note that sort of emphasizes everything we're talking about. Verse fourteen reads. In no way whatsoever is the presently originating, the already originated, or the not yet originated, originated. Just as was expounded in chapter 2 about the presently being traversed, the traversed, and the not yet traversed. And I wrote in my notes, I can't tell if I think this is all baloney or if Nagarjuna has already converted me to his view. It seems like so much begging the question and playing with words. I can think of numerous objections along the lines of, well, what if that's just the way it is? And that's just rephrasing what you've already said, um, uh, Storm, about uh, like, you know, you, you find yourself either having to be like, yeah, inventing all these crazy things. And it's like the process of reading it 
that's most interesting to me rather than necessarily each individual argument. I think I've said that before. And I'll just add one last thing, and that is that for people who are listening to this and are you know interested, I would really recommend something I didn't do at first, but I've started to do, which is if you have a, a copy of this with um, commentary, try to find a version without any commentary and at maybe maybe after maybe you want to read the commentary first and then go back and just read it straight through in the sort of poetic version because there's a flow to it and um uh, even though it does bear breaking down there also is a different effect you can get when you just take it all by itself yeah it's it's a text that works on you right i've compared it a couple of times on here to like almost like a mind virus like it gets in your uh it gets in the machinery you have in your head it reifies stuff and 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 makes all these errors and it just totally messes it up like now you know i've been through this text enough times where sometimes i'll be thinking about something unrelated you know think about some specific problem or some other kind of philosophical thing and nagarjuna will just like show up and wreck everything because that's how the right. text kind of like works on you right yeah i mean what you were saying is you end up you end up begging the question which is basically assuming what you seek to prove in your original statement of the problem, or you end up coming up with weird special cases or appealing to the unexplainable or, you know, what <clears throat> really what this text does is if you, if you try and make sense of self-existent objects, it gets really, really messy. He's, he's basically proving that you can't do that. I mean, you, you can't have self-existent objects and have properties. You can't have self-existent objects and have events that happen. You can't have self-existent objects that um, that are causally in contact with each other. You destroy cause and effect. It makes no sense. Really, the only way um, to have like a purely coherent understanding of all of these different things that we want to make sure we account for, properties, phenomenon, causality, arising, passing away, the only real way to make sense of these things and to make sense of our own identity <clears throat> is to think of them as being dependently arisen and empty of self-essence, which is to say mediumly between total non-existence and quote-unquote real reified existence. I guess it's kind of like exactly what Ara said, just that's the way things are, period. Yes. No further conceptualization. I had a bit of an aside that I wanted to to do today and i don't know if now it's the proper time but um go for it, it, it basically it, ha it basically it has to do with what is the practice that surrounds all of this kind of intellectual understanding um and i think what you said storm king about this being a text that works on you over time like a mind virus i think that's really relevant um because intellectual understandings of things are important and good. And I'm not one of these people who is like, oh, you know, there's there's no point to intellectual understanding. I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, it's extremely useful to intellectualize things. But I think I think I'm not going too far. I think you guys would agree with me if you if if I were to assert that um, that's always going to be incomplete and that realization has to sort of occur. I won't call it pre-rational, but I think our friend Evelyn might call it super rational level. Um, where your intellect is engaged, but you're also doing something that's uh, a realization that's over and above any sort of uh, verbalization of of what you're realizing. And I, I think that's cool about this text. Um, but my but the main thing I wanted to point out was that the, at least in the like in the Thai forest tradition, 
and I know I'm going way far afield because we're doing an ancient no, Indian. Ahead, uh, <laughs> uh, there's about 1500 years uh, and a few thousand miles be between these guys and, and a few different languages. But in the Thai forest tradition, they really emphasize what's what's in the original Pali and Sanskrit in the teachings of the Buddha. The emphasis in Thai forest tradition is on basically all of, all of your experiences are fabricated, right? You you fabricate them out of the um, out of the skandhas, essentially, out of the you know the aggregates of your experience of your being, um, and to that degree, they're sort of they're illusory in the sense that they don't have to be the way that they are. You're through your choices, through your actions, through your karma, you've fabricated them that way. And the point of meditation is to sit down and see yourself fabricating them, because once you see that, you're no longer um, deluded about that particular thing, and you realize that you have a choice about how you're going to fabricate them. And the path that's recommended in the Thai forest tradition is to turn all of your negative um, or diluted uh, fabrications into positive fabrications. So you're not you're not trying to jump directly to total awakening because it simply doesn't work that way. Now, I know some other schools might teach differently, but this is what they teach. Um, so the point is that you through like good breathing, um, uh, pleasurable breathing, you enter into jhana states and you're, you you know that you're fabricating them. You know that this is still somewhat a deluded state. But the point is that the Buddha taught that from these good from these good karma, good fabricated states, that's when you can pass into um, ultimate understanding and, and an unfabricated, unoriginated state. You know, nirvana, whatever we want to call it, total enlightenment. Um, and it's interesting to think about. Now, I believe very strongly that this is a good path. And I'm not saying no one is allowed to disagree, but I, it's an excellent teaching. And uh, you can definitely find, like the Buddha does teach this way. He teaches that we are trying to eliminate desire, but the one desire you have to keep until the very, very end is desire for awakening. And that's a good desire, and you want to cultivate that. And when the time comes for you to drop that, you'll know that. You know, like the, the taking the, uh, the raft across the river in the famous simile, right? The, the Dharma is meant to be a raft that you can use to cross the river, and then you throw it away. You don't need the raft anymore, right? But everybody always talks about, oh, yeah, then you just throw it away. And I'm like, nigga, you need, pardon my language, we can edit oh, no. that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, actually, it. it's, it's actually, we're not on YouTube, actually. So I think yeah, yeah, can, soft R. It, it was fine. Nigger. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, the Buddha is, you know, I, the Buddha is saying, my nibbas, um, you don't talk about throwing this raft away until you're across the damn river like everybody's like oh i don't need this raft it's like you're still in the middle of the stream you do not want to throw this raft away when you get to the other side you'll know it's time to throw the raft away um now i've gotten very far afield from nagarjuna here um but it's just something that i put in my notes to bring up because he is talking about um what's real what's fabricated none of this is real and everything and for me that's a sale that's a relevant point but it's also somewhat only relevant uh when you get into this yeah when you get away from the path and you're like wait why does it matter what i do then these texts are very helpful for me uh, but when you're in the middle of the path to me it's okay that you're like fabricating things and and using things sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for provisionally yeah it's a, i mean it's it's a lot better if you're doing it consciously than just sort of being like tossed about because... in the waves Kagyu. Sorry, what did you say, Kagyu? And it's not just unique to the Thai forest tradition either. 
Oh, it's not that when you're talking about fabrications and using mental fabrications, it's not just in the Thai forest tradition either. I was actually reminded of like visualization, which is really prominent in in the Tibetan tradition with like yadam practice, and that's kind of that same principle of 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 going of creating like these fabrications and and utilizing them as a skillful means towards greater understanding. It's it's very similar in that way. Can you explain for me and our listeners what is yadam? Practice. Yadam, I mean, it would basically be the the practice of visualizing, say, a a, um, a deity. Um, it's it it's done in a very particular way, and I'm sure Dharma Kirti, if he was on here, could give a much better explanation than I could. But uh, it's it's the process of visualizing a deity through uh, it, it's and the, it's, is that it's where like you you like you you picture their surroundings and like, it's almost yes. like a mandala that starts to form around yes, them. In you your form mind. Is that like similar? almost like a mandala and form it in your head. And then you kind of like, um, visualize and then visualize yourself as the deity. If, in if you've yeah, had yeah, particular. yeah, yes. And that's that same okay, kind of way yeah. because you know, like Western students will sometimes ask, well, is a Yudam real or, and like, there's that saying that I sometimes throw around where the, a student who was asked that the the lama replied, "Well, you know, Tara knows she isn't real. Tara is right. One of the uh, an example of the Adam. So, in that way, yeah, you're, it's kind of like you're not really reifying it or saying it doesn't exist either. In breath, in uh, in traditions that focus very very heavily on breath meditation, um, there's a lot of emphasis on like you know, calming the breath and then seeing the, again, again, the breath is not just the oxygen CO2 going in and out of your lungs. It's the flow of energy in the body. So it's analogous to prana or prana. chi. Yeah. Um, or chi or even uh, pneuma in the Western tradition. And uh, anyway, orgones. so you feel the en- orgones. Yes. All, you feel the energy in your body and you, you basically settle it down. You make it all pleasurable. And then you notice levels of stress that you didn't realize were there and you breathe through those. And ultimately you can actually reach a state where you're not breathing at all. Um, but your chi is still flowing. Uh, I mean, there's no in and out breath or it's imperceptible and you're deliberately fabricating this. It takes a lot of time, a lot of concentration, a lot of dedication, but the understanding is, and maybe I'm repeating myself, but the understanding is that you you're doing this on purpose and you understand that it's fabricated, but the, but when you can reach this kind of a state, normal discursive thought can be put away and there isn't actually like energy flows like distracting you or anything and you're basically experiencing total internal silence and then you start to see some real shit right then you start to see what's been underlying on all this stuff um and again repeating myself but like the it's fully understood that these are fabricated states that like and it's a big mistake to mistake jhana for total enlightenment so I want to take this opportunity to discuss something that came up. I was talking about Christianity uh, on Twitter this week. And <laughs> what I want to talk about is a difference between uh, what, I would, what I would call religious faith with a capital F and what I would call maybe provisional faith with a lowercase f. So, you know, so basically someone was trying to, to convince me that you know, when you start out doing Zen practice, that this requires faith uh, because you have to at least believe that it's going to work and there's some truth to it that it's worth doing, right? To me, Which is a fair point. Yeah. To me, that is a lot different than having faith in the existence of a deity, which is totally unverifiable by me, right? Like, you know, because you really can't be a Christian unless you have 
faith in God, in Christ, in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, etc. But you can just do Zen practice without worrying about any of that. All you really need is the inclination to do it. You know, being asked to believe in things that like that that aren't verifiable by me, that that are an article of faith that's not something that I can like see the truth or falsity of, which is why, you know, that's the whole point of invoking faith. I don't think that that's the same thing as the faith that the floor is going to be there the next time I take a step, right? Or the faith that um, the water that I'm drinking is going to quench my thirst. I think those two things are different enough to where it's understandable that I have trouble with one right, and, and not trouble with the other. Because on in the Zen example, I can actually see if these things are true myself by doing it. In the other example of like the existence of God and the Trinity and all that, it's not something that's verifiable by me. And, you know, the other thing is, it's, I mean, even the, in the Tibetan tradition, I can think that that's actually true as well. Like, like I often think of like when sometimes when I've, I've heard like a teaching that's some, that's like, sounds almost religious about say something like the lower realms or rebirth or the, 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 the teaching will often end with, well, meditate on it or think about it and then figure out how to be, figure out how to believe it. It's, it's, it's any kind of teaching in, in Buddhism is always seen as provisional. Whereas any kind of doctrinal teaching in Christianity is seen as absolute. That's right. In the sense that, you know, the words here on this page really do capture the absolute reality of, say, the Trinity or the Incarnation or something like that. Whereas even in a very explicitly religious form of Buddhism, like, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, it's not really so clear that the teachings aren't provisional. It's actually, I would say that it's almost as much as is in the case in Zen. What, what do you, you know, well, well, I mean, in Zen, I think like... It's, Go ahead, man. Well, I was going to say, I think it's also, I think it's important while while making these points, which are which are good points, and I agree with you guys. It's also important to say that on on the other hand, also the the Tibetan tradition, all these various traditions, are also not saying, I don't know, man, who knows, you know, just not a big deal, who cares? No, you can, like you can know, it's, you can. It's not like, yeah, it's not like liberal nihilism on the other hand, you know what I mean? Because that's that, you know, we've done our episode on California Dharma before, so we don't need to get into it. But because there is this sort of seeking, you know, this kind of explorer kind of uh, vibe to Buddhism in general, and, you know, the, the Buddha urged us all to look and see and find out for ourselves it when when taken with the wrong attitude that you know that encourages people to be like oh well you know it's just it's all what you make it up to be man you know like who's to say man you know like that's not that's also not what he's saying no right. it's it's that your understanding of it will change as your practice evolves it's 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 not it's not saying that there's no meaning to it and and i often like to right. think like especially when you're talking about like some of the big cosmological claims you sometimes get in buddhism or at least what you might see it as a cosmological claim from some Buddhist texts, really they're meant to be understood in the way you'd understand like the signpost towards a hotel. It's not the hotel itself, it's the thing that points you in the direction. And you don't really know what it is until you go there and experience it for yourself. And your experience of it is going to change as you spend time there, basically. Or as you right, get closer I mean, to it. Yeah. There's a whole thing in Zen, there's a saying, you know, before I studied Zen, mountains were mountains. While I was studying Zen, mountains were no longer mountains. After I understood Zen, mountains were again mountains. And it goes like that. For the big cosmological questions, um, I 
I have sort of I provisionally believe basically all the more ancient the more attested to and the more central the more I believe them and I just base that on the stuff that I can figure out for myself like you know these meditative practices so it's you know I just <laughs> if uh you know if the Buddha or Nagarjuna made a claim about something that I haven't yet been able to verify, I like I give them the benefit of the doubt because the stuff that I have been able to verify, they're more right. You know, just like anything, any teacher, like forget forget religion. You know, let's just say you're learning a trade or something, and the guy you're, who's teaching you is like, oh man, you don't want to flip that switch over there, and you don't understand right why yet, but you take his word for it because the other stuff that he's taught you that you have, you know, he's shown you like the best way to use this or that tool. And you're like, oh, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So this other thing, this other claim that he's making that I I don't know about yet, I'm just going to take this guy's word for it. And later, maybe I'll, I'll understand it for myself. That's the way I sort of look at, yeah, you know, see, being a student yes, of these things. That's what makes it categorically different. That last bit where, you know, if I keep going, maybe I'll understand it for myself. It's verifiable, right? It's it. I just think those things are different than you know, like the type of theistic fate that, you know, uh, I was, I was basically being accused of being a hypocrite because of, because it was being argued that like having faith that the Zen practice is worth doing is the same as having faith in, in God or whatever. And I don't think it's the same. I think that the element of being able to verify it for yourself through experience makes it different. Uh, at least a little, but yeah. Okay. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, and let me just say, like, just for me personally, how Nagarjuna fits in, like, my history of practice and what I think as somebody who's uh, a Zen student and who, who's been through all that. And I just think, uh, and I've said this before, that what what when you're engaged with a teacher or when you're reading these, these koans and doing koan practice, what's happening is that you're seeing examples of someone who was stuck, who was deluded or stuck or hung up about a specific point that they couldn't get past. And you're seeing the Zen master respond to them in specific ways to disabuse the pupil of that point. You know, they'll be hung up on something about reincarnation and the Zen master will go, you're an idiot if you believe in reincarnation, that's dumb, and then he'll hit you with a stick, and then now you're not stuck on that anymore, right? Um, so it's almost like what Nagarjuna is offering you, the fundamental verse of the middle way, is one giant complex cone that, if you understand it, will get rid of all possible delusions. That's at least the, the, how I look at it, right? So instead of you being engaged in a dialectical process where you're helped uh, instant by instant, moment by moment by your teacher, you're getting it all at once in this big encompassing work, right? That's kind of how I see that relating to my practice. And, and in the end, for me, there's there's the ultimate truth, which is, you know, you see when you have Prajna Paramita, it's the Dharmata, it's the Tathata, it's the this, it's the suchness. It's fucking this in all capital letters with asterisks on each side and exclamation marks. And then <laughs> there's the conventional truth, which is where you describe things the best you can. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's it for me. So... <laughs> That's how I look at it. For me, for me, it's been very interesting to come back and look at this because I, I wasn't there the week that uh, you guys talked about uh, the Mahayana in general, but I did listen to the episode. I thought you guys did a great job, and I, unfortunately, I wasn't there to put my own two cents in, but as a Westerner and uh, somewhat of a dilettante most of my life on these things, um, I, you know, I, I was intensely interested in Buddhism, and I came at it from 
you know, every book I could get my hands on. So I was reading all kinds of random stuff, some by Westerners, some from the old tradition and uh, some from some places in between. And I was going to Zen temple and I was reading Robert Thurman and uh, I did come across Nagarjuna and I was very, I was very excited about the Mahayana um, ideal, uh, uh, you know, the liberation for all beings. And I loved the, uh, I loved the idea of the Bodhisattva and I still do, but I was really taken with it at the time. And I won't bore you guys with like, you know, exactly how all this stuff happened. But as you know, I, I've, I've sort of settled into uh, meditation in the Thai forest tradition. And I think it's really great. And I recommend it to everybody, but because I was, you know, I realized that being a dilettante was not really helping me very much, and I really needed to stick to one practice, or I never was going to make any progress. Um, I stopped really looking at the Mahayana stuff. I've always held it in high regard, and I, I, I really, I hold you guys in high regard and Dharmakirti. And uh, but you know, I just hadn't really engaged with this stuff in a long time for the for the reasons I just explained. Mm -hmm. So it's really cool to come at it because I totally agree with you, Storm, um, and I think DK is of this opinion too that this is like the text you know this is like this is the the like the key the keystone text of of really high level mahayana like wisdom right yeah it's like um, the, and the so, top of the philosophy part of it yeah and so i it's been really fun to come at it and see and to be asking these questions that are in my notes um because yeah like we've said uh, several times now, you know, sometimes I'm like baffled by it. And then I'm like, I think the point is that I'm supposed to be a little baffled right now. I get it. Okay. Okay. You know? Well, good. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's good having your perspective as like a more of a, um, a Thai forest or, or, or Theravada perspective on here. I think it's, that's one of the coolest things about our little project here is we got several different perspectives. And uh, DK with his encyclopedic knowledge to tie them all together. Yes. <laughs> oh, see how are we doing on time here? Yeah, how long have we been at it? I don't even know. Um, yeah. We've been going about 45 minutes, so we've got a little bit longer we could go. Um, so that the next chapter is on the agent in action. So, you know, the opponent is tempted to make the argument, well, okay, all the stuff we've already been over, so that stuff's empty of self-essence and dependently originated, right? Um, but the perceiving subject isn't. The perceiving subject has to uh, inherently exist in order for all of this, uh, all this other stuff to depend on it. Well, number one, and this is not in the text, but I would answer why. Why does why would why would you theorize that? Like just because the things the subject is aware of are empty doesn't mean the subject has to be not empty. Um, and it's a pretty short chapter and it essentially boils down for me, this is the easiest way to understand it. So if somebody is an inherently existing agent, that means as their unchangeable nature, they are someone who is doing an action. Okay, so this is on agent and action. That's, that's the notes I took are using the terms agent and action. That's what I'm used to. Yeah. Um, so you're inherently someone who is doing an action. Well, there are already some problems. An action is something that changes over time. So I don't understand. I don't really think the notion of change is compatible with a self-existence, right? That would mean that it has to be getting information from something else in order to change appropriately. It also means that whatever 
um, the agent intrinsically was an action of. So, like, you know, if if you were intrinsically a water drinker when the, you drank water, you would be have to be doing that all the time. Um, right. Yeah. And so if we say, okay, well, no, action, the agent is empty, but the actions themselves, those have a self-existence. Well, that's already on its face kind of silly because to say the action has a self-existence when it relies on something else, namely the agent for its cause uh, in order to exist, that's by definition dependent, right? So we have mm -hmm. the same problem we find everywhere else. When you strip these things apart and reify them, you, you destroy the coherence of the experienced world. Like, you know, you can't exist inherently as an agent. You know, uh, you would never be able to do anything different. Uh, mm -hmm. You guys got any comments on that? I mean, that's I mean, the short little chapter there. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the agent can only exist in dependence on the actor, and the actor can only exist independent on the, uh, on the, or in the, on the action. When you drink water, you're a water drinker. Water drinking is because you're drinking water. Yes. And that's really the only way to make sense of it, because if you split those things up and reify them, uh, it gets really silly. You create the possibility for there to be a, an instance of water drinking with no water and no drinker. <laughs> you create. Right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So, yeah. Well, the, the only thing is I actually have disproven Nagarjun on this because oh, I shit. am Let's intrinsically I am intrinsically a water drinker and I am always drinking water. So that's, you know, that's sorry, Nagarjuna. Your voice is you. very clear. I don't hear bubbles or, or anything. That's impressive. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one cool thing in the Sidorets in this chapter, and I don't know if there's an, an analogous thing in the Garfield, but um, is that they... The very first chapter, they they explain a kind of a cool historical fact about how uh, the terms that Nagarjuna uses to get at this thing um, are based on the six uh, classical case endings for nouns in Sanskrit. Um, and now it's too bad we don't have DK, or maybe it's lucky we don't have them because then we would get our. No, nah, I'm just kidding, DK. We get a lex uh, lesson on um, Sanskrit grammar, but actually, I wish we we could get that. But I think, um, obviously, Nagarjuna, if the grammar had been different, he would have picked it apart from a different way. But I, I think it's kind of interesting that these, these terms agent, uh, which is uh, karter or karaka, and object, which is karman, are – he's taking these um, from, like, Sanskrit grammar schools, essentially, like the, the, uh, the understanding that Sanskrit scholars had about how their own language works. And then, even more interestingly um, – the, they put in a little table showing the nine different ways that um, Nagarjuna considers, like, how could somebody try to, yeah, like, uh, try to claim that there is something that could be reified. And it's based on whether the agent or the object, um, so that's like the me or the, the water drinking, right, um, or could be either real or unreal or both real and unreal at the same time. Um, and so he has nine different cases of this, and I won't read all nine. But for example, the agent is real and the object is real, or the agent is unreal and the object is unreal, or the agent is real and unreal and the object is real and unreal. And so he goes all the way down through like the nine possible combination of those um, and shows like how each time it's just it, that can't be the way that it is. And again, this just points to this sort of like exhausting the ways, you know, that your mind is denied 
it's it's desire to reify something and it flies into another corner. It's like, okay, well, I'll hide over here. And the guard is like, no, you can't hide there either. You're like, well, what if I hide here behind, you know, around the corner and down the hall? And it's like, no, I see you there too, you know? And there's nowhere to hide because he exhausts all the options. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, I mean, see, to me, I just, it's like a super, it's like the, the koan to end all koans, the turning word to end all turning words. Yeah. Well, we are at uh, about an hour. If you guys, do you, anybody got anything else they want to talk about? Or we didn't get to the last chapter, but I think that's okay. Uh, we can just start there next time. I'm really interested in the next chapter and then especially chapter 10 mm -hmm. to just take a look ahead. Um, and I really want to hear what you guys have to say about chapter 10 because I don't quite know, uh, but I do have some sort of side points I want to make on it. So I guess I can use that as a teaser for our next episode. That is this whole uh, thing uh, about fuel and the fire and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I want, I'm going to make sure I have, um, I have my notes for that and that I have a real thorough verse-by-verse -verse analysis so we can go back to that because, uh, you know, this one was a little less focused because I didn't have those notes. But I, that's, that's one of the best, maybe my favorite chapter in the whole thing. So I, I really want to do that one justice. Yeah, what's your teaser about uh, about that? Well, it's just that um, it's just that uh, the the terminology for nirvana itself is based on my understanding is that it's based on the ancient Indian concept of how fire burns, like how fire clings to its fuel, and that when a fire goes out. Um, it's like in the West, we're like, okay, well, there, there's conditions for fire, right? There needs to be heat and fuel and oxygen and stuff. And then this phenomenon happens. And when those things disappear, the phenomenon stops, right? That's sort of the scientific, at least that's how I conventionally think of fire, right? right. Um, but, and it's, I'm not saying this is in the Garjuna, but he's talking about the same terms. So I know he must be aware of these things. Um, uh, Tani Sarabiko has an entire book about how it's called The Mind Like Fire Unbound. It's about how the ancient Indians sort of conceived of fire as sort of existing like in an either like state everywhere all the time. And that when there's an instance of fire that we actually see and can feel heat from, it's because the fire essence was pulled out of its either state, I guess, and stuck to a piece of uh, wood or whatever it's burning right and that it's stuck there clinging to it until the conditions for it clinging to that cease and then it's able to release back into its free ever present around you know around the universe state and if we look at nirvana that way we can see why nirvana is better translated as uh release than it is as extinguishment even though it is talking about a fire going out it it's a way different concept of what it means for a fire to go out. Okay, I had it literally never, goes out. <laughs> I had never understood that, but that makes so much sense and kind of just blew my mind a little that's, bit. Like that's very cool. It is one of the most profound books I've ever read on Buddhism, and it's extremely scholarly because uh, Thanissaro Bhikkhu is very like hardcore Pali scholar. Um, and so I will, you know, and I'll, I'll make a little promise to you and to our listeners. Um, I'm going to reread that book. Because uh, it's very short, actually. It's just, I don't know, 70 pages or so. In addition to reading our um, stuff. And even though it may not be that super relevant to Nagarjuna, it's a good opportunity to talk about that thing. Because it's, it's fascinating. I think it's very important for a proper understanding of Buddhism. Maybe that's uh, worth an episode on its own. Maybe we could all read it. and uh, It sounds interesting to me. I'd, I'd like to read up for that. Yeah. yeah. 
No, fire is interesting because it's 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 obviously something that has a lot of symbolic reference in a lot of the Indo-Aryan religions. Like, I mean, it, it's a, a, like the association in the Rig Veda is there. It survives in certain rituals within Vajrayana Buddhism, and then of course in Zoroastrianism, it's like incredibly central. So that's it's, that's super. That's a really good point, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, ooh. Yeah. We could get a. We could just do a whole episode on fire. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> So I mean, it, it's it's definitely touching on an interesting archetype, especially since Nagarjuna's written writing in in India. And so, I mean, for his readers, I mean, some of whom might be Brahmins, I I, I can see it having that kind of um, symbolic impact as well. Yeah, it make them pay a little extra I think attention, so. maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So that's a, I think that's a great tease for the for the next one because yeah. Nagarjuna continues on his way with his sword of like ruthless uh you know <laughs> ruthless cutting of all illusions and stuff but also like the 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 examples that he uses start getting really interesting in this text as, as it moves along yeah it's gonna be good it's gonna be a good episode um has anybody got anything else no i'm good kagu no i pretty much good all right so all right well since i did the uh since i did the intro i'll do our outro too here storm um Thanks, everybody, for listening to Right Wing Dharma Squats. Thanks very much, Storm King and Kagu, for being here. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye.